You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. Later in the program, Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin reports on the possible reform of Bloomington's boards and commissions by a city council committee. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Dizzle Bulletin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world in a continuation of our mini-series, Lawyers, Schools, and Access, hosted by me, Abe Shapiro. But first, your local headlines. The Monroe County Board of Health met on May 22nd to discuss and approve contract revisions for health department staff. President of the board, Carol Talukian, introduced the contract to alter the administrative assistant, Jamie Ford's position. What has happened as things um, evolved over time, <laughs> that, you know, uh, the current administrative assistant, who is Jamie over here in the corner, um, is doing a lot more than uh, her job description just describes, basically, right? Health Department Director Lori Kelly explained what the changes would be and Talukian added on to what they are proposing to add to the administrative assistant position's tasks. So there are some modifications that you'll see um, in bolded on page uh, two that more accurately kind of represent the overall uh -huh, duties, which is assist with preparation of annual budgets including assistant with, uh, assisting with authorizing and monitoring the preparation of payroll, vendor claims, purchase orders, transfer of funds, and additional appropriations, conducts fiscal and management research, and compiles data for com com comparative analysis, ensuring the department directives are met accordingly. Sounds good. Assist with running financial reports as necessary for involved invoicing grant reimbursement claims, coordinates ongoing staff development and related education, ensuring proper maintenance of professional status and fulfillment of individual improvement plans. And this goes on and on, doesn't it? Assist yeah. with supporting the duties. Yeah, well, James is doing a lot more than her original job description. I'd just like to point that out. Uh, assist with supporting department goals by acting as department liaison as directed by the health administrator, able to attend meetings in absence of the health administrator as directed by necessary may serve as a public speaker for meetings such as directed by the health administrator, execute special projects as directed by the health administrator, coordinates department, computer use and technical services, serves as a troubleshooter when problems arise, and reports unsolved problems to technical services department, uploads and updates department reports and inspection documents to OpenGov system, assists with updating the GIS system with department reports, analyzes and researches laws, codes, procedures, with required documentation and retention, able to serve as backup assistance to the financial manager during periods of time off and or vacancies. All those I guarantee you she's been doing because I've heard about them. Yeah. Yeah. The board unanimously approved the revised contract. The board also approved a contract revision to increase Kelly's hours from 35 to 40 
due to her job requiring more hours than it currently is allotted. Talukian introduced the contract revision. One of the concerns that uh, has come up is the fact that our health administrator, you know, always has, but continues to to uh, work well over her 35 hours that her her job description pays for. Kelly shared that recently she has worked around 13 to 15 unpaid hours a week. Talukian emphasized that with the addition of Senate Bill 4, Kelly's responsibilities will only increase and she will need more time to take care of them. And, it, and this is not going to get any better with SB4, okay? <laughs> this is just going to continue to get worse. So I think <coughs> it's time for us to suggest that Lori be moved to a 40-hour week or 35-hour week. Next, the contracts approved by the Board of Health will go to the Monroe County Council, who will hear the proposed contract revisions at an upcoming meeting on June 13th or July 11th. During the May 25th meeting of the Monroe County Community School Corporation School Board, Dr. Jeff Hauswald presented a referendum that would increase the school district's tax rate by 8.5 cents. Whereas we are asking the board to approve the administration um, to have the authority to investigate the need for a referendum levy um, at a prop- at an approximate property tax rate of 8.5 cents. Um, that would include communicating um, on behalf of the board the tax rate to the Monroe County Auditor to make any and all needed calculations under the operating referendum statute, um, and also resolving that um, any officer of the board and superintendent um, is empowered or directed on behalf of the corporation to take any actions necessary um, to con- basically continue the process um, to make um, for, for prior to ratification approval. And this step is simply procedural. It will allow Mr. Kenny and I to work with county officials to sort of calculate a rate as necessary. Um, we will be getting information then, um, continuing to get information from the community. We've had a series of, um, um, of referendum advisory committee meetings. The next step will be to have a public forum, and that's tomorrow night. So I think there was, um, during a radio interview today, someone said, why do you have a board meeting and then get input from the community? The reality is tonight's authorization is simply allowing us to continue to get information bring back to the board so that the board can make an informed decision in June um, or at a date upon its choosing by which they could decide if they would like to elect to have a, um, a, 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 a referendum. So tonight, again, you're, you're, you're approving this resolution to allow us to continue this process. You are not voting tonight to make a decision if you would like, uh, if you would like to authorize or not authorize a referendum in the future. And with that, I'd ask you to approve the resolution as presented. Dr. Hauswald explained how the Indiana legislature's changes in policy would affect school districts' referendum rates. He outlined how that will impact MCCSC. Uh, what I want to point out is that, unfortunately, in the 2023 legislative session, our Indiana legislature uh, voted uh, to sort of usurp the will of um, local communities. And what that means is that they're going to set a cap on uh, referendum rates for past uh, referenda that have been approved by the voters. So we know that that uh, rate for the 2022 referendum will drop in the 23 pay 24 year. We had planned to use that, um, some of those additional revenue to continue to expand programming, but that has now been limited by our Indiana legislature. We've had a series of conversations with preschool uh, advisory committee groups. Um, and we know we don't have enough access. We know we don't have um, 
enough opportunity for our families to participate in the early childhood programming they need. And we also know that our families face many, um, many financial uh, barriers to K-12 education as well. That includes career center uh, education fees, certification course costs. Um, for example, a CNA course, if you uh, take the class to become a CNA, you want to take the test, those tests are almost $500. We also know uh, AP exam fees can be a deterrent for many of our families. And so we've just been reviewing that and looking at how can we make sure that we eliminate as part of our strategic plan in an equitable manner barriers to many of these programs. And how can we make sure that all of our families are coming to school ready to learn? And that is um, ideally, um, we know it's very research-based, that is having um, access and participating in early childhood education in at least one or two years. So we're continuing to study this um, with ultimately our goal to be to replace a lot of debt. We have debt in our property taxes, uh, our, our debt service fund that's dropping off. We know that our referendum rate from 2022 will drop off. So we'll be getting more information. Um, the idea, uh, much of the, the, the money and the debt we currently have through property tax levies, which go towards brick and mortar, to go towards things, our goal is to sort of move much of that over so we can continue to expand programs to pay people and to provide uh, access to early childhood education. And we know that Betsy, the Bloomington Economic Development Commission Council has um, stated that one of their primary goals is expanding early childhood education. It's a workforce issue, it's essential infrastructure. So we'll be having additional conversations in the future, but I just kind of wanted to point out to you that as we go forth over this uh, conversation and study in the next month or so, um, we anticipate this to be a, a ceiling, but obviously not where we'll end up in the total tax impact to our families. Um, but we do want to make sure that we levy enough money, especially based on the legislature's new law that actually changes the amount of taxation allowed under a referendum by a majority of voters. Um, so we, we sort of have that barrier. So we're trying to be mindful of these new realities created by the Indiana legislature to make sure that we have the funds necessary to do what we what we need to do, what we see as an obligation that aligns to our strategic plan, but also um, um, that is going to continue to create the quality of life necessary and valued by Bloomingtonians and by people in Monroe County to continue to move our district forward. The board approved the resolution unanimously. It agreed to allow public discussion of the item at an event on May 24th. The MCCSC School Board's next meeting has been scheduled for 6 p.m on June 27th. In today's feature report, Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin reports on the possible reform of Bloomington's boards and commissions by a city council committee. We turn to Askins for more. Headline, Possible Reform of Bloomington Boards Commissions Gets Study by City Council Committee. On Thursday, a special City Council Committee met to move ahead with a closer look at reforming various processes related to Bloomington's boards and commissions. Also up for consideration by the four-member committee are possible recommendations on merging some of the city's roughly 50 boards and commissions. The committee is hoping to wrap up its work on board and commission reform by the end of the year. 
The committee was appointed by Council President Sue Scambaluri at the Council's first meeting of the year. It was the same meeting when she was elected by her colleagues as this year's Council President. In addition to Matt Flaherty as chair of the committee, Scambaluri appointed as members the three officers of the Council, including herself, President, Isabel Piedmont-Smith, Vice President, and Dave Rollo, Parliamentarian. Rollo did not attend Thursday's meeting. Thursday's meeting of the committee was the second one that has been held based on Scambaluri's original appointments and assigned scope of work. At its first such meeting held on May 4th, the committee reviewed three other possible areas of initial focus. Updates to meeting procedures, improvements to public engagement, and options to integrate equity into the legislative process. The other three areas are still eventually supposed to get some attention from the committee, but boards and commissions are first up as an area of focus. Earlier in the year, in February, three committee meetings were held to handle a specific matter that the full council had referred to the committee. That was a question about a traffic commissioner's potential removal because of posts he had made on social media. The episode involving the traffic commissioner got a bit of airtime at Thursday's meeting when Natalia Galvin weighed in during public commentary. She asked that local code be revised to include the following sentence, quote, board and commission members that are appointed by city council serve at the pleasure of city council and may be removed by a majority vote of the city council, end quote. One of the starting points for the committee's current round of deliberations is a report by the Novak Consulting Group, which was presented publicly about a year and a half ago. On Thursday, the first three of the 10 recommendations in the Novak report got an initial read-through by the committee. One, merge the Commission on Sustainability and the Environmental Commission. Two, merge the Parking Commission, Traffic Commission, and Bicycle and Pedestrian Safety Commission. Three, consolidate Park, Recreation, and Urban Forestry-related commissions under the Board of Park Commissioners. The idea of merging the Commission on Sustainability and the Environmental Commission got some pushback from Piedmont Smith and Flaherty, as well as Sustainability Commissioner David Maynor, who weighed in during public comment. Maynor said he wanted to draw a line between the Environmental Commission and the Commission on Sustainability. The Commission on Sustainability is commonly called BCOS, B-C-O-S, which is the complete acronym after prefixing the word Bloomington. Maynor said, quote, BCOS has recently adopted the UN's 17 sustainability goals. Four of those are related to the environment. The other 13 cover a very wide range of things, end quote. He continued saying that there's a misconception that environmental and sustainability concerns are the same thing. Maynard said, quote, we are working on communicating that they are not the same, even though environmental is a part of sustainability, end quote. During public commentary time at the committee's May 4th meeting, Councilmember Steve Volan had spoken against the idea of merging the Parking Commission with other commissions. It was Volan who had pushed for the creation of the Parking Commission by the City Council in 2016. Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton vetoed the ordinance creating the Parking Commission, but that veto was overridden by the Council. 
before taking a first look at the recommendations in the NOVAC report. On Thursday, the committee discussed goals of boards and commissions generally, which included improve public policy through the work of boards and commissions, empower and value residents who serve on boards and commissions, enhance diversity, equity, and inclusion goals by increasing the number and diversity of applicants for boards and commissions, increase operational and fiscal efficiency, enhance resident education, ensure that boards and commissions feel their contributions are meaningful, establish clarity regarding the responsibilities and limitations of boards and commissions, promote consistency in the formalization of board and commission practices, foster better collaboration between different boards and commissions, encourage collaboration between the city and county, adhere to laws and best practices to maintain consistency and effectiveness. Also discussed by the committee on Thursday was the set of stakeholders affected by changes to board and commission processes, including prospective members, community advocacy groups, council office staff, mayor's office staff, clerk's staff, staff liaisons to boards and commissions, board and commission members, current and past, and the general public. During the time allowed for public comment, the B-Square asked that consideration be given to adding the press to the list. Flaherty appeared amenable to adding the press to the list of stakeholders. The regular meeting schedule for the committee was settled as the first and fourth Thursday of the month. That means the next meeting is set for June 1st. But based on discussion Thursday night, achieving a quorum next week could be a challenge. But for now, the committee has left the June 1st meeting on its calendar. Now it's time for Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world, hosted by Abe Shapiro. We turn to Shapiro for more. Disabilitin, in association with WFHB News, presents Lawyers, Schools, and Access, the history of special education in the United States. I'm Abe Shapiro. Tonight's episode, The Rise and Temporary Fall of Special Education in Washington State. When we left off, we had just finished discussing the 1951 founding of the Ark of the United States as a voice for the rights of individuals with disabilities. We also covered its humble beginnings as the Children's Benevolent League, or CBL, in Washington in the year 1935, and how it grew to become one of the first disability rights organizations dedicated to campaigning for special education in the state of Washington and across the country. But to understand its later contributions on the national level, we must go back in time once more to understand the historical context of special education prior to and as the ARC was maturing prior to its 1951 incorporation as a civil rights organization. As mentioned previously, Washington State had made significant policy breakthroughs in special education and in education itself. In its 1889 state constitution, it read, quote, education is the paramount duty of the state, end quote. 
A year later, in 1890, the Washington State Legislature passed a bill requiring parents to register any child with a disability for school. While local school districts were required to report to local school superintendents, quote, all feeble-minded children between the ages of 6 and 21 under penalty of fine, end quote, the term feeble-minded was not well-defined in the bill, which left interpretation up to local school districts. Parents themselves who didn't send their disabled children to school would face a fine of up to $200, with an exception provided if the county school district determined the child was receiving an adequate education in the local school districts, in which case the child would not need to go to a state institution and the parents would not have to forfeit $200. But continued monitoring of the child was required. The bill also implied that some, but not all, children could be educated. And yet, progress by Washington State in the field of education, particularly special education, continued to be made. Early special education in the state began with the first class for mentally deficient children being established in 1909 at the Waquiam Public Schools. Bill Dusso, historian to the Washington Arc, describes how this expansion of special education eventually made its way to the institution's housing children who otherwise would not have qualified for such programming in 1916. Services for individuals with disability historically were based on an institutional model. Um, oftentimes, uh, the institutions were, for example, former tuberculosis hospitals or places out in the country where um, we could put those individuals sort of out of sight, out of mind. We didn't have to think about them. And they became uh, places where nepotism ruled and uh, families served uh, those organizations uh, and served as employees for those institutions through generations. And the generations became supportive of the institution because it was how the family made their living uh, out in the country in those institutions. So they self-sustained one another. And that was the principal model of service in the state of Washington. There were a few uh, occasional places in public education, usually where there was a personal relationship between a teacher. Um, I give you an example of the Baker family, uh, a family that lived out in a very rural area outside of King County called Issaquah, which now happens to be the primary district for Microsoft families in the state. So quite a wealthy district now. But then they lived on, they moved out of Seattle in 1911 because Minnie Baker, the mother of Edward, was a school teacher and she couldn't bring Edward, then six years old, to the Seattle School District even to bring her him into her class. So Minnie and her husband simply packed up out of Seattle, moved out to this very rural area and started their own school district a two-room school in the country that became the Issaquah School District. And Minnie brought Edward to school every day. To my knowledge, in the 19-teens, that was the first special education program in the state of Washington, Edward Baker's class in Issaquah. Part of the success for this rapid development was an efficient state funding formula devised that same year of 1909 
in which school districts that taught disabled children would receive five times the amount as that for regular students in public school. For example, in Tacoma, when compared to eight cents to educate each normal child, each disabled child would cost 40 cents to educate, half of which was contributed to by the state government. For all of its promises, however, this funding formula was never matched. Due to the Great Depression, tax revenue, and therefore special education funds declined, a trend which increased in prominence prior to and at the height of World War II, with the Washington state government slashing the budget for special education from its original five times to two times the price of educating normal students. So that by the middle of World War II in 1943, funds were being redirected away from special education and towards the war effort, leading to the closure of several special education classes and a shortage of special education instructors. What's more, the policy of exclusion was also on the rise. By the mid-1920s, school districts across the country began to use new intelligence tests to formulate cutoff points below which children with disabilities could be excluded, Typically, that score was an IQ score below 50. In Seattle, this became the case. In a number of cases, the parents were left with no option other than to institutionalize their children, with over 128 of those students debarred from schools. But most parents refused to send their children away. On January the 16th, 1917, Seven Seattle school children were nearly expelled from the school district after being declared uneducable. And with those parents threatening legal action, the Seattle School Board formally adopted an exclusionary policy in which a child below the IQ of 50 would be barred or expelled, that is, if Ira Brown, the school district physician, and Seattle Public School Director for Special Education Programs Nellie Goodhue determined that such a child was uneducable. Dr. Brown was adamant on excluding, quote, all idiots and imbeciles, end quote, whom he believed belonged in institutions. And eventually, Seattle decided to exclude those with IQs below 50. On the other hand, Nellie Goodhue asked Superintendent Frank Cooper what policy she should adopt toward, quote, imbeciles or children who are not educable but might be trained to do things acceptably, end quote. And yet, in spite of this new policy, children with profound disabilities were being educated in other state systems. A number of districts did reveal children between a 50 to 70 IQ score were in schools, with a 1922 study of Tacoma special rooms, quote-unquote, showing 79 people who were given the IQ tests, with nine having IQ scores between 40 to 55, 30 with an IQ of 55 to 70, and 40 with an IQ above 70. In 1943, with a budget of special education in the state having been slashed considerably, a division of handicapped children was created within the office of the Washington state government. That is, the office of the state's superintendent. A supervisor was hired to create handicapped programs in various districts. The act that created this division continue to exclude children with disabilities, the motive of which is unknown, but resulted in parents having to start from scratch. With new parental advocacy in 1947, Washington State Legislature authorized boarding schools, special day school classes, and other programs for cerebral palsy individuals who couldn't assimilate into public schools. 
Two years later, in 1949, preschool programs were authorized for most handicapped children. But unfortunately, this law built on the 1943 and 1947 acts by excluding mentally deficient children. In other words, the preschool was for children whose learning was temporarily or permanently limited due to hearing issues, speech issues, sight issues, cerebral palsy, or other physical handicaps. Next week, we travel back to 1951, where, shortly after its founding, the Ark of the United States now began its battle for the special education of its own children and those of the future and beyond. Source material comes to us from Doing Disability Justice, a 2010 book on the founding of the Ark of the United States by the late Larry A. Jones, the organization's president from 1981 to 1983. Also, special thanks goes to Stacy Dim, the CEO of the Ark of Washington, and Bill Dussault, the Washington Ark historian. Until next time, Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Brooklyn Lambright, Cade Young, and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Dave Askins, Abe Shapiro, Christine Brackenhoff, and Stacey Bradovsky. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe now to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Spectrum. Diving into the world of science and technology. Coming up next on WFHB.